0: i there will always be wars and storms in our lives, Lord, as long as, until you come, until you come to rule and reign again here on the earth, Lord, we we know that they will be there. We know that there will be trials and difficulties. Your word doesn't tell us any different, but your word is what we can stand on knowing that You will never leave us, never forsake us. That you are our ever-present help in time of trouble. Lord, that you will not delay. You will never be one moment late. Lord, I, I pray that for anyone that is here tonight that is in the midst of a storm, in the midst of a battle, and even feeling some doubt, Doubting you, doubting their faith, Lord, that you would encourage them right here, right now. Lord, we pray as we study your word tonight that we all would be encouraged, that we would all be challenged, Lord, that we would all be changed more and more into your image. That's why we're here in the middle of a week that's no doubt filled with a lot of things. Lord, we put those things aside right now and we want to hear from you. So, Lord, bless us as, our, as we study your word tonight. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we have to come here tonight, to come here to this, this place. Lord, it is a blessing to live in this country and we thank you for it. Lord, we thank you also for the brave men and women who serve in the armed forces protect us, Lord, to protect our freedoms. Lord, we pray for for all of them now and all of those deployed, Lord, that are in harm's way even as we are gathered here tonight in safety. Lord, we pray for the families of those who have loved ones that are deployed, that are away. We pray for those spouses and those children that are left behind. Lord, comfort them. Pray for the safety of, of our men and women around the world. Guard and keep them. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen, Please be seated. And if you are a veteran, active duty or retired, thank you for your service, for protecting us and giving us and protecting the freedoms that we have on this Veterans' Day, thank you. Would you please take out your Bibles, open them up to the book of Second Samuel. Second Samuel, if you have a Hebrew Bible, there's no such thing as Second Samuel, it's all one book, but probably anybody got a Hebrew Bible by chance in here? Okay, never mind, then. Second Samuel, that when again, when the, the, the Bible that we have that we hold today, the chapters and verses that are put in place there, that the the author of, of the book that we're studying when that was when it was written, when it was when the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of this, it was it wasn't first of all, it wasn't called Samuel. <laughs> and it wasn't written by Samuel. It was written many, many years afterwards. Obviously, Samuel is dead at the time that we're looking at this time frame here and it was a continuing story but when they put the chapters and and even breaking the book now into two separate books first Samuel and second Samuel we see a dramatic change if you were if you've been a part of our study you know last week as we finished first Samuel is the death of king Saul and now we transition into the reign of king David we noted As we studied through 1 Samuel, it has been anywhere from 15 to 20 years prior to where we're looking at right now that David was anointed by Samuel to be the next king. There's some debate about how old David was when that took place, 10 to 15 years old, when he was anointed to be the next king. David, as we are beginning our study now in, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, David is 30 years old. And as we study through 2 Samuel, we study through the reign of King David as king in Israel. And that's a 40-year period. He ruled Israel for 40 years. And we're going to see the the good and the bad. David, a great king, but a man nonetheless, and still a sinful man, we're going to see the, those things in, in, through the life of David and many, many valuable lessons that we learn, again, as a man, as we see, and we've talked many times, David, a man after God's own heart. We see as we come to the end of 1 Samuel, beginning into 2 Samuel, the latter part of that time frame that we were looking at, these 10 years, David was a fugitive running for his life, King Saul seeking to take his life continually took everything from David, his his home, his family, all of his security. David even had to take his parents and some of his family and take them outside of the country for safekeeping. All of this during this 10 year period that ended as we spoke last time as well. David, tired of it, (laughs) flees into Philistine country for a 16 month period. Didn't consult with the Lord. As we mentioned, he had a three-way conversation, me, myself, and I, and decided it's best if I just get away from it all and I go into Philistine country. And the Lord's providential hand, covering and watching over David, because the Philistines now are marching into Israel to take territory, to go to war against King Saul. David's on the wrong side of the equation. He's with the Philistines, and he was ready with his men to follow the king of Gath into fight the Israelites. But God moved miraculously, had David taken out of that, sent back to Ziklag, where he was. And just by quick review, when they got back there, the Amalekites had taken away their women and, and children and set the city on fire. David then with his men go and rescue and wipe out the Amalekites and they come back to Ziklag. And that is where we pick up today. The, Saul and his sons Jonathan and his other two sons have been killed in battle. We saw that at the end of, the, of our study last time. Killed in battle with the Philistines. David successfully rescues his family and all of the others, not one person was lost in that. Everything was recovered. All that they had been had been taken away was recovered. And that's where we pick up now chapter 1, verse 1 of 2 Samuel. Now it came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David, and he fell on the ground and prostrated himself. So this is the third day after this happens, and here comes a man running, and he's got dirt on his head and, and his clothes are torn. That means bad news is coming. That is the sign of mourning in, in that culture, when they were mourning deeply of something, they would tear their clothes and throw dirt on, the, on their heads as a sign of mourning. So when they see this coming, they know it's not good news. Now this man that is coming, we're going we're gonna to find out a little bit about this guy here in a moment, but part of it that I see, this, this is anywhere from 80 to 100 miles, depending on where the battle took place, to get to Ziklag, and he did it in three days. That's moving. That that is a guy on a mission to get somewhere. And we might think that it was a a noble mission, and he tries to paint it that way, but we're going to see that it certainly was not. He falls down in front of David in an act of worship before David. David said to him, from where do you come? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, how did things go? Please tell me. So he understands now that he's coming from the battlefield and no doubt David, he goes back to Ziklag, he has these problems he's got to deal with with his family and his whole the village he's lived in has been set on fire. No doubt after all of that's been taken care of going through the the wreckage that is there but no doubt wondering what has been going on in the battle with the Philistines. He says, please tell me and he said, the people have fled from the battle and also, many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And behold, Saul was leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. When he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I said, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Then he said to me, please stand beside me and kill me, for agony has seized me because of my life, because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen." And I took the crown, which was on his head, and the bracelet, which was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Now, immediately, if you were a part of our study last week, I touched on this a little bit, and if you've read this story before, there's a problem in the story that this man is telling. Because as we saw last time, Saul did. He was struck by arrows by the Philistines, and he was dying, an agonizing death. Several arrows had pierced his abdominal section, no doubt just an agonizing death, slowly dying. The Philistines, his enemies, are coming, and he does not want them to be able to take him and make sport of him as the king of the Israelites. So he says to his armor bearer, kill me, finish me off. His armor bearer would not do it. So it told us that Saul took his own sword and fell on it, the armor bearer saw Saul being dead, and the Hebrew is emphatic, Saul being dead, he killed himself. Now, some people say, and the, the, the looking at this, and I respect a couple of them greatly. As I was reading even through it today, I'm like, really? Oh man. <laughs> they, they believe that that it's very probable that what this young man is saying is true. That they came across Dave, They came across Saul, he came across him just by chance, and Saul still had some life left in him, and he finished him off. But that goes against with what it says. I mean, that it clearly says in, in the previous chapter, Saul was dead, his armor bearer saw him dead, and then he killed himself. And also, the story doesn't line up. He says that he saw him leaning up against his spear. I guess with a sword sticking out of him and leaning on his spear, it just it doesn't doesn't add up. So you can do with that what you want. There's people that have taken that and made made a great sermon out of it, saying because Saul was supposed to wipe out the Amalekites, remember, and he didn't. That's why you know, the 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 judgment came upon Saul from the Lord. He didn't kill wipe out the Amalekites like he was supposed to, and then because he didn't wipe out the Amalekites, and the Amalekites are a picture of the flesh or sin. That that later came around and finished Saul off. <laughs> Great sermon, but it's—I don't believe it's true. Um, so, he, <laughs> anyway, um, he he comes to David with this story, and we 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 wonder why would somebody do that? Why in the world would someone bring this? And we and we see it unfold a little bit more because. There's no doubt that this man was expecting a different reaction from David. And let me ask you again, just from a purely, let's say we don't know David as we know David from studying it, would you expect a different reaction than what we read right now? Verse 11, then David took hold of his clothes, his own clothes, and tore them, and so also did all of the men who were with him. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword I guess when I read this it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if David had this reaction as it would say if it said for Jonathan because we understand that Jonathan and David had a very special relationship, and we'll talk about that again in a moment. We wouldn't probably argue if David had this reaction for the overwhelming slaughter of the, the Israelite people, because he knows he's the king of these people. But notice it says, first, until eating, for Saul, for Saul. Saul, yes, that Saul, the one that we spoke of a few minutes ago, the one that for the last minimum of 10 years, even a couple of years previous to that, had as his number one mission to kill David, to ruin David's reputation if he didn't kill him. Spoke lies about him, spread rumors about him, took away his his family, all of his possessions, had David running as a fugitive for the last 10 years. That saw. And David's reaction? No doubt again because of what we saw take place again last week, the restoration of, of David with the Lord, seeking the Lord again. As we saw at, in uh, chapter 30 verse six, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God, restoring that relationship. No doubt, maybe even in that, David seeing a little bit of Saul in himself as he had deserted and and run away and and turned his back on the Lord, and then God being so gracious and merciful to David, didn't put him on probation like we talked last week. He didn't have to go to some long, drawn-out thing. He repented, he came to the Lord, and the Lord immediately spoke to him and used him, seeing all of this amazing grace and mercy poured out on him. Now hearing that the one that was seeking his life has died, we speak over and over of, of David being a man after God's own heart. It says in Ezekiel thirty-three, eleven. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. That's God's heart. Takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And a man after God's heart will have that same reaction. The wisest man that ever lived, Solomon, David's son, no doubt, in my opinion, getting this from his father, records in Proverbs 24, verse 17, do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, or the Lord will see it and be displeased as turn his anger away from him. Do not rejoice when your enemy stumbles. How easy it is in our flesh, right? Right? to get to that point. Well, they deserved that. You know, that, that it, they finally get what's coming to them because they've been, they've been talking about me. They, that, that gossip that they got start, started and going around talking about me, it finally came back and bit them. They deserved that. Right on. Get them, God. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Those are those are difficult things. I, I you ever you ever get that feeling that God wants wants to get a message through? Seems like whenever you turn on the radio there's a it seems like another pastor's talking about the same thing on the radio. Anybody else get that going? Anybody else here on Sunday? I'm reading this today, I'm going, all right, Lord. Is this a replay for me? Probably. Anybody else maybe need to hear this again? As to how we are to react? What it is that how we're supposed to deal with those that don't treat us the way we want to be treated? Jesus, Jesus said, You've heard it said. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Doesn't everybody love those who love them? but we're supposed to be different. Jesus said, "But I say to you, love your enemies." Paul in Romans chapter 12 says in verse 9, "Let love be without hypocrisy." Hypocrisy is being two-faced. Putting on a putting on a mask is the literal thing of of hypocrisy in the Greek, putting on a mask, covering up your real face with an exterior face. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Don't don't be two-faced in your love. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, continuing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Now, that list so far, is that something that we can do, loving without hypocrisy? I mean, it'll take some work, right? But nothing in that list would be like, wow, I couldn't do that. Loving without hypocrisy. But verse 14 says, Romans 12 Verse 14, right after it says, let love be without hypocrisy, bless those who persecute you. That's a lot harder to do without hypocrisy, isn't it? Bless those who persecute you. I have that discussion a lot in counseling with people about forgiveness to to speak a blessing over someone, to pray diligently for someone who is hurting you. And they say, well, I can do that outwardly, but it's hypocritical if my heart's not in it. You're absolutely right, it is. It's absolutely hypocritical to say it with your mouth and not mean it with your heart. It's exactly what Paul's talking about. Let your love be without hypocrisy. How do we do that? How do we do that? Somebody that has hurt us deeply. How do we, we, I mean, we look at Jesus as the example, yes, but that's Jesus. But we have an example here in David. A man that we see is not perfect. He's, he's got skin on like us. Not perfect, but has that heart. We spoke of it a little bit this weekend. We have Christ in us. Paul tells us that that mystery, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Paul tells us in another place that we are to let the peace of Christ rule our hearts. That's the term that where we get to understanding of an umpire, somebody who makes the decisions for the final outcome. He, the peace of Christ, rule our hearts. What did Jesus say about his peace? It's not like the peace of the world, it's different. We need to surrender to that. And again, what a great example we have in David in our story. This is not hypocritical. He is truly broken and weeping over the death of the man who was trying to kill him. Again, he understands the grace and mercy that's been extended to him. The forgiveness and the response that is necessary. Notice also, and this is important before we move on in verse 11, so did all the men who were with him. Again, David's example, the decisions David makes as a leader, don't affect just David. I tell you what, I believe that if David would have went, woohoo, party time, Saul is dead, ding-dong, the king is dead, the king starts throwing it they'd all joined in with that too because they're following their leader. Parents, leaders, we model forgiveness not only for us so that we're not carrying around the bitterness but for our children who watch, for those around us who watch, who will follow the example that we give. They mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul And his son Jonathan, for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. Now, second time he's told David that he's an Amalekite, it's almost like David said, did I hear you right? Because this guy's not really very smart, (laughs) telling David he's an Amalekite. He obviously doesn't know what just happened because David just wiped out all of the Amalekites because they had come and raided Ziklag, understanding that God commanded Saul and the Israelites to wipe out the Amalekites. He's he's, not—he's—that's somehow he's missing that. But also, I think he's—he's totally expecting a different reaction from David. I can only imagine how he's—he's probably getting uh, getting a little nervous. Then David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, go cut him down. So he struck him and he died. David said to him, your blood is on your head for your mouth has testified against you saying I have killed the Lord's anointed. David doesn't give him a chance to backtrack doesn't give him a, anything he said you said it your blood the, your blood is on your own head for cutting him down david saw right through everything whether he believed that he actually did it or not he understood that this man wasn't coming because he was he was mourning he wasn't coming for anything he was coming because he wanted a reward he was coming because he wanted he wanted a, a payout in this whole thing i believe Again, just piecing it all together, he, was, he just happened to be going through that area. Either he was fighting on one of the sides or he was just moving through. He sees King Saul dead on the ground. Here's my payday. Here's my opportunity. God's smiling on me today. Grabs the crown, grabs the bracelet, and starts hightailing it towards Ziklag, looking for David. David says, moving just, Glancing ahead, chapter 4, verse 10 speaking of this man, he said, When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for the news. <laughs> that was, that's the reward you get. <laughs> so, this young man now is, David has him executed. And it goes on in verse 17, and again here we see more of the heart of David, totally broken over this this news, what has happened. Then David chanted with this lament over again, Saul and Jonathan his son. We could understand again if it was Jonathan, but it says Saul and Jonathan his son, and he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow that's what this must be named teach the sons of Judah pass this on Behold it is written in the book of Joshua Your beauty O Israel is slain on your high places I'll read through this and I, there's a couple of things we'll come back and look at I'll read through it in its totality How have the mighty fallen Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised will exalt. O mountains of Gilboa, let not the dew or rain be on you, nor fields of offerings, for there is is the shield of the mighty, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life, and in their death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How have the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? Jonathan is slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of the woman. How have the mighty fallen? And the weapons of war perished. We see this again now, an amazing tribute that now David is giving to Saul and to Jonathan, specifically these two. We see that David finally came to the understanding that Saul was no threat to the promises of God. That all of the things that Saul brought against him could never touch the promises that God made to David. We see that Saul was not David's enemy. David was Saul's enemy, but that did not mean that the other was true because David was a man after God's own heart. God, David did not consider Saul his enemy. The real enemies, David is concerned about and concerned about how they will react. Notice it says, Do not tell it in Gath. Do not proclaim it in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice, the daughters of the uncircumcised will exalt. The real enemies of God rejoice and exalt when the people of God fight against each other, won't forgive one another, gossip about one another, behave like the enemies of God. They rejoice in that. Notice in, and I love this, looking at this, and it, it should just jump off the page at us, what's missing from here? Anything negative about Saul. This is, this is a eulogy. If you've been a part of a memorial service or been a part of sharing in a memorial service, you may not even, might not even know, you've heard the term eulogy, might not even know what it means. It means speaking positive things. I used to think it just meant kind of a history, a rundown of their life. No, it means speaking the positive. It is a good, speaking only those good things. To eulogize someone. How What a shame it is so often that happens only after somebody dies. To speak well. Nothing negative is said in this about Saul. Again, on the heels of ten years of Pursuing after him, saying all of these horrible things, trying to kill him, not one negative word here. I can't help but think of the verse. It says, Love covers a multitude of sins. Completely covered. Not mentioned. David truly loved Saul in spite of all of that. How does somebody love because of that? Because they're a man after God's own heart. Because just as we as Christians, have the love of Christ in us, we have that capability to love like that too. Love that covers a multitude of sins. The love of God that covers a multitude of sins. I love Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. The record that God gives in his word of all of these great men and women of faith. And we look down the list of that. And if, it's, if you haven't read it in a while, read it again. Do that as homework. Read Hebrews chapter 11. It's awesome. I've heard, um, got me thinking about this is Eddie was talking about that. He's going to be going through that with the youth. I think that's a great thing, going through the hall of faith. And we get to these names like Noah and Abraham. And you know what's missing in Hebrews chapter 11? The fact that Noah got drunk and naked The fact that Abraham twice, not once, twice, went into enemy territory, went down to Egypt, went outside the borders, and said to his wife, his beautiful wife, he said, tell him you're my sister, because if they know we're married, they're going to kill me. Twice he did that. Not mentioned. Jacob is mentioned. You know what's not mentioned? The fact that he stole his brother's birthright. Samson's mentioned. you know what's not mentioned? Any of his sin. I love that because love covers a multitude of sin. That's the hall of faith. What happens back then stays back then. We're new creations in Christ. Love covered a multitude of sins in every single one of us. What a beautiful eulogy we see here. David, again, an amazing example. (laughs) I've heard heard it said, and you've heard it said too, and it's not not bad advice except all of a sudden now it sounds so shallow. If you can't say something nice about somebody, what? Don't say anything at all. I'm going to restate that. If you can't say something nice about somebody, shame on you. Seriously? You can't say one nice thing about somebody? If you can't say something nice about somebody, you can say they're created in the image of God. If you can't say something nice about a Christian brother or sister, you can say they were purchased by the same blood that bought me. All of a sudden, that list can start growing really fast. Right? How, the, how have the mighty fallen? Said a few times in this. How they have fallen. I, I wonder what the heart was behind that again, no doubt. Because David knew Saul at the beginning too. He, he, he was a young boy when Saul was this, the mighty warrior at the beginning. No doubt from his older brothers heard the great stories about King Saul and if you'd see this guy, he's like head and shoulders, of like seven foot tall, you know, and all of these things. And, and I wonder, what, when David was a little boy, seven, eight, nine years old, hearing of this, this king, probably thinking, wow, you know, like a superhero kind of thing. And then to go and, and be a part of that as, as a young boy, and then he was his armor bearer for a while, and all of that before Saul started to turn Oh, how the mighty have fallen! I wonder. I I don't know if it's a question or a statement. It it has exclamation points in my Bible. I don't know, but I wonder if he's wondering too. How the mighty have fallen, and they don't fall one step. They don't fall immediately. They fall one step at a time. This was a process for Saul. It's a process for everyone. Bible tells us: think you're think you're standing tall. Take heed, lest ye fall. Well, chapter, chapter 2, then it came about afterwards, after these events that have taken place here, again, 15 to 20 years since, since he's been anointed king by Samuel, all of this time in the wilderness, all of this stuff, after all of these things, it says, David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? I love that. <laughs> Instead of just saying... Obviously, I'm going to one of the cities of Judah. Again, ding dong, the king is dead. Saul's finally dead. I get to finally become, nope, David's learned his lesson. He's not taking a step without the Lord. Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. I love this, David's heart again. Okay, cool, where? (laughs) Where shall I go up? Let's be a little bit more specific, Lord. Where, Where exactly do you want me to go? And he said to Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up his men who were with him, each with his household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came there, anointed David king over the house of Judah. So the... (laughs) The men now come there. God sends him to Hebron. The men of Judah come and anoint David king, recognizing now David as king over them. The men of Judah, we're going to see that not all Israel does right away. They told David, saying, It was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. We saw that at the end of last week, the end of 1 Samuel. Saul was... his, his concerns were real. The Philistines cut off his head, stripped his body of all of his armor and his clothing, and nailed his body, his torso, up on the wall at Bethshan. The men of Jabesh Gilead risked their own lives to go and take his body down along with the body of Jonathan and give them a proper burial. Now the so David, verse 5, sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, may you, may you be blessed of the Lord because you have shown this kindness to Saul your Lord and have buried him. Now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you, and I also will show this goodness to you because you have done this thing. Because you did the honorable right thing, well, I will treat you well, and the Lord treat you well. Now therefore... Let your hands be strong and valiant for Saul your lord is dead and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So he extends now to them, you, come with, you can come with me. I've been anointed king by the D- Judah. Saul is dead. You were loyal to him and you're to be rewarded for that but he's dead. Come join me. Come follow me. Verse eight, but Abner, the son of Nur, Commander of Saul's army had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him to name. To now, Ishbosheth, we saw in the last chapter that three of de- Saul's sons were killed in the battle with him. Jonathan and two of his uh, Jonathan's brothers. Ishbosheth is the remaining son of Saul. He was not in the battle. He was not there fighting. He was back home. I don't know if that was just in case they all got wiped out. We don't know. We don't have any more details of that. One might ask how the commander of Saul's army got out alive when everybody else was wiped out. That being Abner, he now, instead of falling in line with David, gets Ishbosheth and places him as king. And we're gonna see that this was this was all so that Abner could have control. Ishbosheth certainly not a, a powerful ruler by any stretch. He made him king over Gilead over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, even over all Israel, and that includes Jabesh-Gilead. So they they continue to follow Saul's son. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So Ishbosheth is going to rule for two years, we'll see, we won't get there tonight, but he's, he's, he's killed eventually after reigning for two years. The first two years of David's reign, David reigns, it says, for seven and a half years in Hebron. In, after seven and a half years, he moves the capital to Jerusalem and he rules from there for the remainder of his 40 years as king. So for 38 years, he rules over all of Israel. The first two years, it's just over Judah. There's a civil war that breaks out here. Now, verse 12 now Abner, the son of Ner, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon with the servants of Ishbosheth, the sons of Saul. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon, and they sat down one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. So Abner and a bunch of men from Ishbosheth's contingent come, and they meet Joab and a contingent of, of men, fighting men from David's side. So the two armies are coming together here. Now... Joab, it says, is the son of Zariah. That is David's older sister. So this is Joab is David's nephew. Now, because she's a much older sister, probably around the same age, they might even be older than, than David, you know, younger Uncle David. But we don't don't know. It's but in that same time frame. We'll know as we see through this. Joab, uh pretty ruthless fella. We're going to see some different things through his life. He actually outlives David. We'll get to that when we get into 1 Kings. But, um, but anyway, so they meet at this pool. And Abner says to Joab, and obviously they know each other, Now let the young men arise and hold a contest before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. So they arose and went over by count twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. Each of them seized his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called the OK Corral. <laughs> it's easier to pronounce than Helcahezorum, which is in Gibeon. They send 12 guys from each, and if you have a King James version, it says almost like this is a, for sport, almost. Let, let's let these 12 guys entertain us. 12 guys from each side. Pretty sick entertainment. And so they're going to come in and fight against one another, but it, it, it doesn't make any sense, does it? Kind of. When I, when I think of this, it's, it, they grab each other by the head. And then they thrust the sword in with the right side. So you grab the guy by the head. You're leaving this all exposed. So yeah, you got a good shot in, but so does he. It's kind of like a hockey fight. You ever watch a hockey fight? They grab onto each other and they just start pounding on each other. And it's just boom, 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 boom. And before they, they're laying on the ground, both of them. Doesn't make any sense. It, 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 it's, it's a senseless thing. They all fall dead. 24 of them dead. Now, it says after that, they they call it that the the battle was very severe and Abner, the men of Israel, were beaten before the servants of David. So after this goes on, the the other guys probably just just turns out to this all out melee, but the servants of David clearly winning the battle. Now, the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab. Abishai, and Ashel, uh, Asahel, and Asahel was swift-footed as one of the gazelles, which is in the field, so he's really fast. Asahel pursued Abner and did not turn to the right or to the left from following Abner. So Abner takes off running. This isn't going at all like he thought, so he takes off running, and Asahel takes off running after him, but he is, he's really fast, so he's closing in and catching up. We can see, as we'll continue, Joab and Abishai are are further behind. And he didn't turn to the right or the left. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is that you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. So Abner said to him, Turn to your right or to to your left and take hold of one of the young men for yourself and take yourself his spoil, basically saying, There's there's a bunch of dead guys around. Just quit chasing after me. Just if you want some trophies or whatever, they're right there. Don't keep coming after me. But Asahel was not willing to turn aside from following him. Abner repeated again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? Quit coming after me because I'm going to have to kill you, and then I won't be able to look your brother in the eye. However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the belly with the butt end of his spear so that the spear came out his back, And he fell there and he died on the spot, I'll say. And it came about that all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. So Abner, running, and he's an experienced warrior. Asahel, obviously not. Young man, thinking I'm just going to catch up to him. Probably just reaching out to, to grab a hold of him. And he stops short and thrusts his spear backwards and runs right through it. And it goes completely through him and it kills him. They says that the rest of them that came by, they, they stood still. He, no doubt, kept on going. It says, Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and when the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Emma, which is in front of Gaia, by the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. The sons of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became one band, and they stood on the top of a certain hill. So Abner now, he gets the forces, and they come around, and so they have the upper ground, And we see now these two brothers, their son has, or their brother has been killed, and they're pursuing, but they realize that their position is not a good one. The sons of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner, stood on top of the certain hill. Verse 26, then Abner called to Joab and said, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the end? How long will you refrain from telling the people to turn back from following their brothers? (laughs) So... He, he says, "Aren't you going to call call this whole thing off?" I mean, I realize it was my idea too to start the whole thing, but aren't you, you know, let let let's let's call it good. Joab said, "As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely then the people would have gone away in the morning, each from following his brother." So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the people halted, and pursued Israel no longer, nor did they continue to fight any more. So they call in off the troops. Abner and his men then went through the Arabah all the night, so they crossed the Jordan, walked all morning, and came to Mahanaim. Then Joab returned from following Abner. When he had gathered all the people together, 19 of David's servants, aside from Asiel, were missing. So you got 12 that died in this stupid contest. Only seven other men were killed from David's side. But the servants of David had struck down many of the Benjamites and Abner's men so that 360 men died. Very one-sided battle. And they took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night until the day dawned at Hebron. Now there is definitely some um, application points to take out of that last piece, but based on time that we have left, I actually thought we'd get through chapter 3 tonight, too. So we'll pick up right where we left off there. If you want to read ahead uh, into chapter 3, and we'll pick up, uh, probably get a little running start next week at the end of chapter 2. Um, but let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. Lord, it, it is so refreshing to be able to come every time and get a drink from your word the living water that we hold in our hands, Lord. Your Word is alive and active, and Lord, our desire is to be changed by it. And Lord, again today, I'm challenged by the example that you give us in David. Again, a man after your heart. The heart that takes no pleasure when the wicked suffer. We see in David... Someone who takes no pleasure, even in someone who hurt him so deeply, would suffer. Lord, that's our desire, that we would have that heart, that heart that can truly and totally forgive, the heart that does not not curse but blesses, and not hypocritically. Lord, we want to love with your heart. We want to love as you love, and that is only possible when we let your peace rule our hearts. So Lord, again, we pray that you would do that work in us. If there is anyone that we need to forgive, that we need to completely turn over to you and allow you to do a new work in us, Lord, do that tonight. That we might shine even brighter for you. Lord, we know how your heart must rejoice when restoration takes place in your body. So, Lord, we ask that your work, that work would be done in us. We thank you and we praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a good rest of the week. Stay warm. Isn't, it, isn't this crazy? I'm like cold tonight up here. God bless you guys.